Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are not ju- excuse me, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So now it makes sense why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today, and it's not the first Sunday of the month as we usually celebrate. We came to this passage, and I said, how can we talk about this passage and not celebrate the Lord's Supper? at the end of discussing it, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Just a note as we get started today, so I am here this week, this coming week, I will be in the office. If anybody needs me, um, you can reach me as usual during the week. However, I'm not going to be with you next Sunday. So most of you know that this last spring season, as I often do, I have been coaching um, Girls on the Run, which is a running club for third through fifth grade girls. It's actually nationwide. My daughter is running in it. So I've been coaching a group of third through fifth grade girls um, every day for the last eight weeks. And the big culminating celebratory 5K where all of the different girls on the run chapters come together in Brunswick, Maine, is run next Sunday morning. So next Sunday morning, as you gather, I will be down with hundreds of third through fifth grade girls running a race that I can finally win. No, I... No, so I will be with the girls next Sunday morning. However, next Sunday morning... The elders and Jacob and the worship team will be leading the service, and you will have the privilege of hearing from Leah Carl and some of the staff from Zoe Women's Center. So as you just heard Kevin announce, Zoe Women's Center is having their Walk for Life on next Saturday the 4th. Well, Sunday the 5th, they will actually be here to speak to you, so you'll get to hear a first-hand report of that walk. 
and also a firsthand report of what Zoe's Women's Center continues to do in supporting women in crisis pregnancy um, situations. And so again, I'm, I'm glad that you have that opportunity and I look forward myself to hearing uh, what they have to say. So that's what's going on this next week. But for this week, we are invited to come together, to come together right now. And the invitation is not from the Beatles. The invitation is from the Apostle Paul in the passage that Jeannie just read for us. Paul is inviting the fractured church in Corinth and the fractured church throughout history to come together right now. Five times in what Jeannie just read for us, Paul uses the same Greek word. It's sunerkomai, sunerkomai, which literally means to come together. It's where we get our word synergy, coming together. It's coming together. And five times we heard the call to come together when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And this word, Paul actually uses it seven times throughout this letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians. He uses it seven times, and all of the occasions are between this chapter, chapter 11, and chapter 14. Because what we're going to find is that between this chapter, chapter 11, and chapter 14, Paul is turning to talk to the church about when they come together. He says there's some problems. When you come together, there are some problems in the church, and these next four chapters are addressing the problems when the church comes together. And right here we find that the biggest problem the church faces is that even though the church is coming together, the church is not coming together. They may be physically coming together, but they're not actually together. You know, for those who've studied early childhood education or child development, they know that one of the stages of play that that children grow through is called parallel play. Parallel play. And that's a form of play in which children are playing and they're near one another and they're playing, but they don't try to interact or influence each other's behavior. They're basically both playing and they're in proximity to each other, but they're not affecting each other. They're doing their own thing in the same space. And Paul's concern is that the church in Corinth is doing that in their worship services. They're having parallel worship. Everybody has come together in the same room in proximity to one another, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are with one another. That doesn't mean they've come together. They have come together, but they're all doing their own thing. So that means that they're not actually together. Does that make sense? You know, and the Apostle Paul's concerned. He's concerned with this issue because they need to come together. And why is it such a big deal to him? Because, church, we need to remember, we don't gather here on Sundays to attend church. We gather here on Sundays because we are the church. Did you hear that? We don't gather here to come to church. We gather here to be who we are, the church. And if you're coming here on Sunday morning just to do your individual Jesus and me thing in the same physical space with the person next to you, you've missed the point. We come together to be who we are. Church is not about me. Church is about we. Church is about we. We come together to be who we are. 
the church. And, and so if we come together, but we're not actually together, well, that makes no sense. Because it misses the point of who we are and of what we're called to do. You know, the Greek word that's used for the fellowship, for the, the life of the church, it's used repeatedly at least 19 times in the New Testament, is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is translated as fellowship or participation or sharing. And, and so what koinonia is, is if you picture a jar filled with marbles, that's not koinonia. Because while those marbles in the jar are all in the same space, they're in proximity to one another, they're not affecting one another at all. One marble makes no difference to the other marble. That's not koinonia. Koinonia is a coming together where we affect one another and we interact with one another. It's a sharing in, a participation in life together. Paul used this word koinonia chapters ago when we started studying 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, he opens saying, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, which is koinonia, of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, friends, you've been called, you and I have been called together into the fellowship, the fellowship, the community, the koinonia of Jesus Christ. So when we come together weekly, it's a declaration of who we are. We're declaring who we are. We're a people who come together, a people who share together in life, in fellowship, in community. We are the people of God. And notably, Paul used this same word koinonia to describe what happens when we come to this table. Just one chapter ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote in chapter 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the body of Christ? So friends, in the Lord's Supper, when we come together in this meal, we're coming together with Jesus. We come together with and as His church to come together with Jesus at the table together. And that's why we often call the Lord's Supper by another name. Communion. Because we have communion, koinonia, with Christ, and communion, koinonia, with one another. Friends, when the whole church comes together in worship, and especially when the whole church comes together around the Lord's Supper, it celebrates our communion. And so we should be concerned in all of our worship, and especially around the table, are we together? Are we together? And the church in Corinth wasn't. And that's why Paul's writing. He says, guys, you are not together. You're together, but you're not together. Uh, he's stating in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, the NIV translation is a little bit clearer, maybe even a little bit more pointed. It says, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. They do more harm than good? Ouch. Paul says when the church comes together, when it comes together but it isn't actually together, it causes harm. And that harm is evidenced by the divisions in the church. Uh, again, verses 18 and 19, he says, In the first place when you come together as a church, 
I hear there are divisions among you, and I, I believe that in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, for those of you that have been with us as we've been studying through this letter of 1 Corinthians, you know that the church in Corinth was fractured. There were all kinds of divisions, and Paul has already written repeatedly about it. And so here again, he's calling out divisions in the Corinthian church as a symptom of a deeper problem. He says, there are divisions among you. And in this statement here, Paul might be doing one of two things. He might be speaking sarcastically, or he might be speaking seriously. Now, as we've heard before, Paul can be a little sarcastic and a little bit cutting when he's trying to make a point. So he might be sarcastic here. In his comments in verses 18 to 19, he might be saying, well, of course you think there need to be divisions among you, because some of you think and act like you're the genuine article, the true believers, and everybody else are a bunch of posers. So, of course, there's divisions among you. Basically, a sarcastic jab at the divisions that exist in the church. Or Paul might be serious in what he's saying. He might seriously be saying that in God and his providence sometimes allows controversies and trials, which result in divisions that reveal the genuine spiritual quality of those who are in the church. And that when those divisions happen, it's the exposing, the weeding out of those people who have come together, but haven't really come together with the church. So whether Paul's being sarcastic here or whether he's being serious, his words highlight the division that exists in the Corinthian church. And Paul says that division is manifesting itself right now, most obviously and evidently in your celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, we need to understand that the worship services of the early church looked a little bit different from our services today. So, they were often in the evening, and so they shared an evening meal together. Their gatherings always included a shared meal, and as part of that shared meal, or as that shared meal, the Lord's Supper. So, so their, their gathering was, was a full meal, a full participation and a celebration of the Lord's Supper along with the other elements of worship that they had. Now, we remember that when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, He actually did it during a Passover meal, which was in and of itself a full meal. It was shared by the Jewish participants to remember the Lord's deliverance of His people from slavery in Egypt. And the night before He was betrayed, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with His disciples, and He repurposed that meal as a commemoration of his deliverance, the deliverance that he was about to effect upon the cross. As Jeannie read for us from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, now just as a side note, you know what we have here? This is actually the earliest written report that we have of what happened in the upper room. Just as a note, 1 Corinthians, this letter, was written in the early 50s, maybe 52, 53, 54 A.D. The earliest of the Gospels, Mark, was most likely written in the mid to late 50s, which means that this letter was probably written a couple years before any of the Gospels were written. So you know what that means? This right here is the oldest written record of what happened in the upper room that we possess. And what we find is that 
More than that, Paul says, this is the direct tradition that I received of the Lord's words from those who were there. This was directly passed down to me. The language they use is in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That's formal language. That's the language that you would use if you were passing on a well-preserved and revered tradition. I received, I delivered. I received exactly as I have delivered to you. So what we have here are the very earliest written testimony of what happened in the upper room, received by Paul, now delivered to those in Corinth and delivered to us today in Camden. Jesus repurposed the Passover remembrance to become a remembrance of his own death and resurrection. And friends, if you are here today, or if you're online, and you're on the fence about who Jesus is, and you just want to call this man a great teacher, you need to think about what he did here this night. Because this was a really definitive action. Now remember, the Lord God instituted the Passover meal. He commanded it for his people after the Exodus. And at this time, the Jewish people had celebrated the Passover meal for thousands of years. So what mere human teacher walks in and has the authority to change the purpose of that celebration? No mere human authority could change the Passover. The only person with the authority to change the Passover is the God who created the Passover. Friends, if Jesus was not God, he had no authority to do what he did in the upper room. If Jesus was not God, then his actions are those of a madman or a megalomaniac. You can't call that man a great teacher. He thought he had the authority as a mere human teacher to change a ritual that God himself had instituted that the Jewish people had practiced for thousands of years? Friends, if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, God himself, then these actions are inexcusable. But friends, Jesus was and is who he claimed to be. Jesus is fully God. And clearly, as God, he had the authority to take the Passover and to repurpose it and say, now, this bread that's broken, this is my body. The wine, the cup, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. Because what we see here in the report of 1 Corinthians and all the reports that followed in the Gospels, which all match this report, is that Jesus reinterpreted and repurposed the Passover meal so that it now celebrates the Lord's deliverance through Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper became the centerpiece of Christian worship. The gatherings of the early church included the Lord's Supper, which again was a full shared meal, a potluck of sorts. It included, the services included prophecy and prayer and singing and scriptures. But the Lord's Supper, the communal meal, with its spiritual purpose, the coming together of the Lord with His people at the table was the center. And Paul says to those in Corinth, the problem is the center is not holding. Because when you come together, you're not coming together. In fact, Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, there's that Greek word again, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You see, the the wealthy who had greater leisure and control of their own time, well, they would show up early to the feast. 
and they would bring the really good food. And the party would start early. But the working class, well, the working class, they couldn't show up until much later after they'd gotten off of work. And by the time they got there, the good seats were gone, and most of the good food was gone, and all that they were left with was the meager contribution that they were able to bring to the shared feast. So some were showing up at these meals, and they were getting fat and drunk, and others were showing up and going away hungry. And Paul says that, that is not the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is about coming together. In fact, in verse 22, he diagnoses what? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So the actions of the wealthy who feasted with no regard to others humiliated the poor that were among them. And it showed an utter disdain for the church, for the people of God. This meal was supposed to bring the church together to showcase how Christianity overcame all social classes. How Jesus has come to erase social distinctions between man and woman, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. However, instead of erasing the social distinctions, the Lord's Supper now was emphasizing the social distinctions. And Paul says that is not the Lord's Supper. He says, what you're celebrating is not the Lord's Supper. You need to come together. And church, the same is true today. The fact is, this teaching strikes at the heart of our worship. Did you show up here today just concerned about me? Or did you come here today concerned about we? We need to take seriously the prayer that we sang this morning. Make us one. Make us one undivided body. As we approach worship and as we approach the Lord's table, are we coming as a group of individuals unconcerned about the person on your left and your right? Or are we coming together? Now, while I've alternately been calling this celebration the Lord's Supper or Communion, we know that some traditions also call this celebration the Eucharist which is from the Greek Eucharista, meaning thanksgiving. Because again, look at verse 24. When Jesus had given thanks, which is Eucharista, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, whatever we call it, we need to address Jesus' actual words spoken here about the bread and the wine that night. So as we saw in verse 24, Jesus said clearly, this is my body. But what do you mean by that? There's been much controversy through the ages. We should also note that in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus taught and he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, these two teachings have been understood in a variety of ways throughout church history. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has historically taught that according to Jesus' words in the upper room and in John 6, the bread becomes the actual body, the flesh of Christ, and the blood becomes the actual blood of Christ. The, the fancy theological word is transubstantiation. Trans means change. Substantiation means substance. The substance is change. 
and the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Christ. However, in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, reformer Martin Luther took issue with this view, and he articulated his own view, which has been called, in the fancy term, consubstantiation. Con means together or with. Substantiation means substance. So Luther argued that rather than the bread and the wine actually becoming the body and blood of Christ, that Jesus Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. The, the analogy to make a little sense of this is that is that of a sponge full of water. Now, the sponge is not the water, and the water is not the sponge, but the two are together in the same way that the bread is not the body and the wine is not the blood, but they are there somehow together. Consubstantiation. Now, a third view was articulated by Huldrych Zwingli, who was around the time of Martin Luther. Zwingli taught what's been called the memorial view of the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine are simply symbols. They simply memorialize and remind us that Christ's body was broken for us and His blood was shed for us. And then the fourth and final view of the Lord's Supper was articulated by theologian John Calvin. Calvin took issue with the Roman Catholic understanding. He didn't agree with Luther either, and he didn't think our friend Zwingli went far enough. Calvin believed that while the bread and the wine did not become the body and blood of Christ, he also believed that the Lord's Supper was more than just just a memorial. Calvin said the symbols do more than merely represent, but they bring us the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ and His benefits. So those who eat the bread and drink the wine in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, are actually being spiritually nourished by the body and blood of Christ. So Calvin's position came to be known as what's the spiritual presence or real presence view. So there's your history lesson on four major views of the Lord's Supper. But what do we do with it? What do we do with all these understandings? Well, friends, with all due respect, we must reject the Roman Catholic understanding of the Supper, Because along with teaching that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood, they also teach that the Eucharist is a sacrifice of propitiation, that we're re-sacrificing Jesus over and over again, offering Him to God for our sins again and again. But church, Christ was sacrificed once for all, and the sacrifice was enough, because Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. Instead, many here today would tend towards Zwingli's memorial view or Calvin's spiritual presence view. The the supper is at very least a memorial, but it seems more than a memorial. That that we actually have a feasting upon the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. Maybe as we sang this morning, come sit at the table and come taste the grace. In a real way, we spiritually meet Christ as we come to the table and He spiritually feeds us. Such an understanding would seem to fit best with Jesus' words. But friends, we find that this meal was more than a memorial. This was a meal that was meant to be a memorial, but also to look forward. Consider verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Christ died for His people, and one day Jesus is going to come and return to claim His people. So when the Christ returns and He comes to claim His bride, the church, Revelation 19.9 says there'll be a feast. Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So at the end of time, there's going to be a great feast. And friends, every time we come to the table, we anticipate the feast at the end of time. We proclaim that Christ will return and He will claim His people. This, this meal not only remembers what has been, but anticipates what will be. This not only looks back, but it looks forward. This not only fills us with gratefulness, but it fills us with hope as we look forward to the Christ who came to save us by the shedding of His blood is the Christ who will come and claim us as His people and eternally we will live with Him. And as such, when we approach this table in just a few minutes, we do so reflectively. Consider Paul's words in verses 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, i just got to say that these words have been horribly, horribly misunderstood over time. You know, some have taken these words to mean that before you can come to this table, friends, you've got to clean yourself up. Straighten yourself up. Pull, up. pull yourself up by your religious bootstraps and get right. And then come. But friends, that's not what this call means. As one commentator wrote, the call for self-examination is not aimed at excluding those who've sinned. It's aimed at excluding those who don't care whether or not they've sinned. The unrepentant and the proud. Because, friends, the Gospel, the good news, is not that you can or should make yourself worthy to receive. The good news is that Christ makes us worthy. However, if I'm proud and I don't recognize I have a problem, I'm not going to come to Christ for the solution. If I think I'm healthy, I'm not going to go see a doctor. If I don't believe I've done anything wrong, I'm not going to repent and I'm going to refuse any forgiveness no matter how freely it's given. So the table is not for those who are worthy because none of us are worthy. The table is for those who know they are not worthy and have trusted and entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ who makes us worthy. As we opened our service singing, there's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. So come sit at the table and come taste the grace. Friends, are you hopeless? Do you confess that you've strayed? Are you weary from striving to be good enough or to do enough or to be enough? There's rest for the weary, rest that endureth, because earth has no sorrow that heaven can't kill. The table's not for the worthy. It's for those who turn to Christ and long for Him to make them worthy. But friends, Paul's main thrust through this whole passage has been the communal nature. Come together. Come together. And we see that in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those in Corinth are eating and drinking the Lord's Supper without discerning, without caring about the rest of the body. And as we heard Paul say in verse 22, you despise the church of God by your actions. You're not discerning the body. You're not recognizing the body. You're just coming for yourself. It's about me and not about we. If you come to the table, you must come together. And we heard Paul say in verse 29, come together because if you don't come together, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. Those are some serious, serious words. And Paul gets more serious in verses 30 and 31. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Is Paul saying that because of their disregard for the body, because of their failure to evaluate and judge themselves and repent of their sins, some in Corinth 
have fallen under judgment and become sick and even died? Yes. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Friends, this is serious. It's a serious issue how we come together and worship. This is not trifling. Paul says because some had become so calloused in their disregard, they had fallen under judgment. But friends, Paul makes clear the Lord's desire is never to condemn but to correct. It's never to condemn but to correct. His work is not punitive but restorative. Look at verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the Lord disciplines now so that we avoid condemnation then. The author of Hebrews discusses the reality of God's discipline in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our own good that we may share His holiness. Friends, if the Lord disciplines, He disciplines that we may live. He disciplines that we might share in His holiness. He disciplines that we might avoid condemnation. Paul warns those in Corinth and in Camden, take seriously your coming together in worship. Examine yourselves and repent, lest you too fall under discipline. Not a discipline of condemnation, but of the painful discipline that alerts you to your need, so you repent and avoid condemnation. Judge yourself, lest you fall under judgment. And he concludes in verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. And then, and so that when you come together, it'll not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. So again, Paul's message throughout this is when you come together, truly come together. Consider one another. Care for one another. Make your worship about we, not about me. Celebrate not your own supper, but the Lord's supper. Let these gatherings be not just about what you want and what you need, but be about coming together and seeing that all are blessed. So friends, as we come to the table right now, examine yourself. Are you coming to the table as me or as we? Is there self-centeredness that you need to confess? Pride that separates you from Christ or separates you from His church? Is there unforgiveness or unwillingness that you need to submit to Jesus Christ? Is there apathy and deadness to the things of Christ that you need to ask Him to bring to life? Friends, as we come, hear the invitation. Come now. Sit at the table. Come taste the grapes. Come together right now to receive. And let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we come in our need. We come to receive your mercy and your grace. We come to remember. We come to proclaim. We come together. Speak to us now in the silence. Speak to us now of our need. Speak to us now of the goodness of Jesus Christ.